With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Firstly, a huge thank you to my new Patreon supporters this week. That's Kerry Jameson, Kate Burrows and Joseph Watson. Thank you very much for your support and I hope you enjoy the nine bonus episodes and the other exclusive content you can find on Patreon. Today's story is a two-parter where we look at the life of David Morley. We pick up his story in 1999 in central London and we look at what happened to him through two horrendous attacks where he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But before we start, a word from today's sponsor, Harry's. As many of you will already know, I'm a big fan of Harry's and I personally use their products. I'm a sensitive soul and Harry's gives my sensitive skin the very best shave I've ever had. As well as that, I love that I know I'm using a quality product. From the packaging when it arrives at my home, to the smell of the shave gel, to the solid razor handle. Join me today, not literally in the bathroom of course, but please support my podcast and claim your trial set for just £3.95 by going to harrys.com slash truecrime. Not being so good at following rules myself, not being so good at following rules myself, I love the attitude of the founders, Jeff and Andy. They were fed up with being overcharged with razors, so their answer wasn't to moan about it, but to make their own shaving products, offering a high-quality shave at a better price. Get started with Harry's today by claiming your £11.50 trial set for just £3.95, all delivered to your door. Just head to harrys.com slash truecrime right now. That's harrys.com slash truecrime. Let's give today's story some context by looking at the music of the time. Topping the UK charts in April 1999 were those bad boys of rock, Westlife, with Swear It Again. Whoa! Bit of a risque title, huh? Using the word swear, but that's hardcore rock and roll for you. Fatboy Slim was at number two with Right Here, Right Now and Martine McCutcheon at three with Perfect Moment. Maybe she was referring to that perfect moment when her song stops playing. In the US, TLC were top of the charts with No Scrubs, and the top Australian album in 1999 was Mambo Number no. 5 by Lou Bega. With the England cricket team facing a worrying few weeks of the Ashes series, I'm saying nothing. This was the month that Jack Ma founded Chinese company Alibaba. Bill Clinton was cited for contempt of court for giving intentionally false statements in a sexual harassment civil lawsuit. The horrific war in the Balklands claimed yet more lives. And there was horror in Colorado, where Eric Harris and Dylan Kleibold killed 13 people and injured 24 others before committing suicide at Columbine High School. So on to today's story. David Morley was originally from the West Midlands, but he'd lived in London for 16 years in 1999. David was a gay man 
with lots of friends and was known to his pals as Cinders. He was the centre of any party, always ready to have fun. In the 1990s, he spent a lot of time fundraising for the HIV and AIDS charity, the Terence Higgins Trust. And this fundraising was perfectly suited to someone with his outgoing, friendly nature, who was liked by all who met him. One friend described the days in the Midlands as, I remember the time when we'd all cram in someone's living room to watch an episode of Fame, and when we crammed into someone's escort or cortina to go for a walk or karaoke night or drinking down the local pub, camping or water fights. It was similar when he moved to Lewisham, South East London. One friend said, He was so well liked that if there was a party going on, he would be top of the list in South East London and beyond. Another pal, Mandy, described his impact as, You could feel lower than low and walk into a place where Cinders was, see his beautiful smile and his fantastic outlook and love for life, and you knew within minutes, if not seconds, that you'd soon be smiling and laughing along with him. David then moved to Soho, in the very centre of the London party scene, where he worked behind the bar of the Admiral Duncan pub in Old Compton Street. If you don't know that part of London, the street is the main focal point for London's lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender community. It features several gay bars, restaurants and cafes, as well as a popular theatre. Whatever your sexuality, it's just a great place to hang out and have fun, and there are always interesting people to chat with. David was well known and very popular with both locals and visitors. Two special visitors in particular were Mary and Zalka from San Francisco, who told how David had often visited their sister pub, the Cinch Saloon, in the US city, and had shown them around London when they crossed the Atlantic. He was so gracious and kind to his lesbian sisters from San Francisco, as he would call them, that they became fast friends and visited each other for the last four years. As you can see, David was a popular guy loving his life in April 99, which was when he heard news of an attack in Brixton. It was 5.26pm on a busy Saturday when a nail bomb exploded outside a busy supermarket in Brixton, South London. The explosion sent nails flying in all directions as Saturday shoppers, including families with young children, milled around the market. The windows of shops and a passing bus were blown out and shoppers were knocked down. 45 people were injured in the attack and a two-year-old boy was lucky to escape with his life as a nail embedded itself into his skull. Thankfully, nobody was killed by the bomb, which contained over 1,500 four-inch nails. Let's just pause and think about that for a moment. That's a bomb designed to cause some serious harm. It had been left in a holdall, and one market trader was fortunate to escape with any slight injuries, a nail in his foot, when the bomb exploded seconds after he'd moved it. Although nobody was killed, this was a seriously, seriously powerful device. To give you an indication, it blew a parked car across Electric Avenue, which backs onto the market, injuring the driver. Brixton is a multiracial area and was the scene of violent race riots in the 1980s. At this time, in 1999, the so-called Irish Republican Army, or IRA, were the initial suspects, as their campaign of violence 
had seen horrendous attacks on mainland England. Police, however, quickly ruled out the possibility of IRA involvement and said it was not related to Irish terrorism. They thought there was an outside chance it could have been an Irish splinter group or maybe the work of a Serbian or a Bosnian gang in the capital due to what was happening in their region at this time. But very early on, the prime theory was that the bomb was the work of right-wing extremists attempting to start a backlash against the Stephen Lawrence report which had labelled London's Met Police institutionally racist following the cowardly racist murder of Stephen by a group of racist thugs in Streatham, South London. And then exactly a week later, another similar bomb exploded, this time in vibrant Brick Lane in East London, at the centre of the London-Bangladeshi community. Six people were injured when a device exploded opposite a police station in the busy East End street shortly before 6pm. When the bomb went off, many local Muslims were gathering outside the East London Mosque for evening prayers. If, like me, Brick Lane is one of your favourite parts of London and you love the buzz there and have spent some time there, you can imagine that when the blast occurred, the area was packed with shoppers and revellers, enjoying a normal Saturday evening. The people on Brick Lane at that time got seriously lucky as a member of the public had found the bag and suspected it might be a bomb, had placed it in the boot of his car as he rang 999. This undoubtedly limited the effects of the explosion. Scotland Yard Deputy Assistant Commissioner Alan Fry, head of the anti-terrorist branch, speaking publicly said, this is another vicious atrocity with terrorist impact. Early indications are that this is a similar device to that in Brixton, we are treating this as a racist offence. Behind the scenes, Fry and his colleagues were working frenetically. They frantically looked for evidence from Brick Lane and spent thousands of hours watching CCTV, but with no break. They knew there would be another bomb coming and it was a race against time to stop the next attack. The attack at Brixton seemed most likely to identify the suspect. A young man had picked up and taken the black and yellow sports holder in which the bomb had been placed, leaving a strange-looking package behind, unbeknown to him that that package was in fact a bomb. So police now knew if they could locate a man on the CCTV carrying a distinctive holder, then they had their man. Armed with pictures of its distinctive yellow-green logo, officers from Scotland Yard's anti-terrorist branch combed 26,000 hours of CCTV film from the area for a glimpse of the man with the bag. The yard video viewing rooms were running 24 hours a day as footage was slowed for frame-by-frame examination. And then on Thursday, April the 22nd, an officer noticed an image taken by a camera inside the Iceland store in Brixton. The image wasn't that great, but it clearly showed a suspect carrying the bag who was wearing a white baseball cap, which made searching other CCTV slightly easier. On Tuesday, April the 27th, a further image was found of a young man with a white baseball cap carrying the bag, and this was released to the media on the Thursday. Over 550 calls were made to identify the man, and a number gave the name David Copeland. This move convinced David Copeland that he would be caught. When he saw the picture released to the public, Copeland knew that time was running out 
and that afternoon, he left work early from the Jubilee Line extension in East London, heading home to Hampshire to collect all the bits he needed to make his third bomb. He quickly returned to London and booked himself into a small, anonymous hotel in the Victoria area, covering his tracks by moving to another hotel nearby the next morning. Meanwhile, at Scotland Yard, the pace of the investigation was picking up. A taxi driver called to say he had taken the man on the image from Waterloo Station to Brick Lane the previous Saturday. CCTV footage seized at Waterloo showed the man coming from a platform which handled trains from Hampshire. And then at 5.25pm on Friday, a man named Paul Mifsud called to say he thought the image was certainly his colleague, David Copeland. He'd not been at work that day. As urgent efforts were made to find out about Copeland and track him, unbeknown to the police, he was making his way to Old Compton Street in Soho to attack the very heart of London. It was a summer's evening and Old Compton Street was full of people. The Admiral Duncan pub was packed as always and filled with all ages, gay and straights from all over the world having a great time. Julian and Andrea Dykes, John Light and his partner Gary Partridge, all from Colchester, had travelled to London to see the ABBA musical Mamma Mia. They'd met up with a friend, Nick Moore, a former partner of John's who lived in London. Julian and Andrea were typical of the people enjoying time in the pub at that night, maybe having a few drinks after work, before a show, or maybe before dinner. The couple had met at the Gala Bingo Hall in Colchester, where she was a supervisor and Julian had worked to earn some extra money while he was studying computing at Hatfield University. John Light had worked as deputy manager of the bingo hall until he was promoted to manage another one in Berkshire, five months previously. When Julian and Andrea had married in August 1997, they had chosen John Light as best man at their wedding, and now that Andrea was four months pregnant, they'd asked John to be a godparent, and the trip to London was his way of thanking them. It was a normal Friday early evening in Soho. David Morley was running the bar at the Admiral Duncan and laughter filled the air. Just over an hour after Paul Misford called Scotland Yard, David Copeland walked through the doors of the packed pub. He told bar staff he was waiting for his boyfriend and leaving his sports bag containing 1,500 nails by the bar, he said he was going to get his cash out and would be back shortly. At 6.25, on Friday, April the 30th, the bomb went off. Speaking to the independent newspaper, one witness described his experience that day. My friend had come down from Manchester to visit me, and we were planning a big night out. We were just wandering around Soho. We walked to Old Compton Street and happened to be going past the Admiral Duncan pub when the window exploded. It was horrific. It didn't sound how I'd have expected a bomb to sound. I felt the impact rather than heard it. The noise itself didn't seem that immense. I thought it'd be a massive boom, but it was more like a dull thwack. The impact went right through me. Everyone instantly knew it was a bomb. It's hard to work out whether some things I think I remember really happened. So much of what I thought I saw that day is very hard to compute or comprehend. The mangled limbs and stuff just made no sense. It was like in a cartoon where things explode and people's clothes get ripped and shredded. It looked ridiculous. A lot of people barely had any clothes on. 
because the blast had just blown them all off. I am pretty sure that a man flew through the window of the pub and across the pavement right in front of us. But to this day, I don't recall any screaming. In fact, I can't remember any noise apart from the sirens, possibly because I was deafened from the impact. At first, neither me nor my friend knew how injured we were. We just couldn't tell. We moved away from the pub itself and went and sat in a nearby doorway. The actual pub didn't look like a pub anymore. It just looked like a smoke-filled cave. We were sitting with a guy whose leg had either blown off or wasn't entirely there. We tried to talk to him and comfort him. Other people were coming up to us and checking we were okay. It turned out I only had lots of tiny cuts and bruises, but others weren't so lucky. Andrea Dykes was aged 27, John Light 32 and Nick Moore 31. They all died in the blast. Andrea's husband received serious shrapnel injuries and burns. He did not learn of the death of his wife until three weeks after the attack. He said, I remember an enormous rush of air and an orangey flash of light. Then I was put on fire. I did not see the other four. Julian ran out of the pub. I was waving my hands trying to put myself out. I was sitting on the curb opposite. My bum was wet and I believe that someone had poured water over me. A shoe was missing. I can't remember anything about what was going on after the bomb. Gary Partridge, John Light's partner, recalled, We were all in good humour and chatting. We were all so happy and having a fantastic time. All of a sudden I saw a flash of light. I cannot remember where it came from. I heard a popping, like a champagne cork. I instinctively ducked and covered my face and head. It appeared to be very calm for a few seconds, Then I heard people beginning to shout and scream. He described the moment when he found his partner, John Light. At first I thought he had lost a leg, but when I looked again, I realised that was because it was so soaked in blood. His hair was burnt, he was conscious, but complaining that he couldn't breathe. The people laid him on the street. I heard him call out Julian's name. But tragically, John Light died later from his injuries. As we heard, David Morley was working at the time of the explosion, but he survived the blast at the Admiral Duncan pub. Speaking to the Gay Times afterwards, he described how he thought he was dead following the blast. Everything went yellow and I thought, do I live or do I die? Although superficially, he'd been lucky and just suffered from burns. Psychologically, the attack affected him more deeply. In next week's episode, we will look at this in more detail and follow more of David's story. But for now, let's look at what happened to cowardly bomber David Copeland after he planted the bomb. He initially went back to the hotel in Victoria and had returned to Hampshire and was watching the news covering the carnage he had caused. At 1am on Saturday, May the 1st, hours after the bomb in the pub, officers from the flying squad were knocking on his door. He let them in and straightaway admitted that the bombings were all down to me. His arrest came too late for the victims of Soho. It was, however, a blessing for the mainly Asian community of Southall and South London, as in his room, Copeland had his fourth bomb almost ready to devastate their lives. When police swooped, they were shocked at the Nazi flags and paraphernalia they found in his home. 
Asked by police why he attacked blacks and Asians, he replied, Because I don't like them. I want them out of this country. I'm a national socialist, Nazi, whatever you want to call me. I believe in the master race. He craved fame and notoriety. But in his confession to police, he made it clear that his aim was political. My main intent was to spread fear, resentment and hatred throughout this country. It was to cause a racial war, he told detectives. There'd be a backlash on the ethnic minorities. I'd just be the spark that would set fire to this country. When asked why he had targeted a gay pub, he said it was because he hated homosexuals and he wanted to irritate the Prime Minister and other politicians. He said, I knew it would piss everyone off, especially like Blair and Mandelson and them lot, Mr Boateng. It's puzzling what turned Copeland into a killer so consumed by hate. He had what seemed to have been a normal childhood in Hampshire, the second of three sons, with his father an engineer and his mum a part-time helper in a centre for the handicapped. He was, in the words of his father, a pretty little boy with such a cute manner, he was generally lovable. He did very well at school, he was fairly intelligent. He was just a normal boy into football and mini rugby. He was not moody or withdrawn. But at school he was small for his age and is said to have resented it, gaining the nickname Mr Angry. His peers at school remember nothing about his beliefs and none recall him showing an interest in Nazis or white dominance, despite his claims to police that he was already an admirer of Hitler. He left secondary school with a few low-grade GCSEs and began drinking and taking drugs, including heroin. This was followed by convictions for assault. Copeland claimed that he was mentally tortured by his parents, who he thought considered him to be homosexual, attributing his own hatred of gay men to this. His dad didn't agree, saying, but David had girly magazines and girlfriends. I never had any problems or worries about his sexuality. Copeland was late to puberty, and one time his parents made him go to a growth clinic where his genitals were examined. Although he was fine, he blamed his parents of what he saw as this humiliating experience. It was later in his teens that he began to develop far-right views and withdrew into his own world of murderous, Nazi-induced fantasies. Psychiatrists discovered that his IQ was higher than average, but he was an underachiever with a powerful sense of inadequacy. His parents didn't see any problems, and his dad said about his son that he rattled on at times about religious stuff, not about racism or homophobia, but Bible references. I'd say, what are you talking about, David? Shut up. By 1997, when Copeland moved to London to work on the Jubilee Line extension with his dad as an engineer's assistant, he'd become homophobic and a racist. He spent a lot of time living in bedsits, becoming increasingly isolated, with only his pet rat, Whizzer, to talk with. He still had feelings of anxiety around his sexuality, and struggling to meet women, he used his salary to regularly use the services of London sex workers. Copeland first had his idea for bombings when he watched TV coverage of the Atlanta Olympics bombing in 1996. The next day he saw reports on the Notting Hill Carnival in London and started fantasising about what would happen if there was a bomb there. 
It was now that the seeds of bomb-making were in Copeland's mind. Over a few months he spent over £1,500 on fireworks, from which he moved the flash powder and other bomb components. Burning with intense feelings of hatred and inadequacy, he began studying online how to make bombs. He began experimenting, secretly igniting small explosive devices in various bedsits, and later much larger ones, in an isolated common at the dead of night. He joined the extreme right-wing party, the BMP. More about that delightful group in the podcast on the Oldham riots. And he became an activist. In 1997, he was photographed standing next to the party's founder, John Tyndall. While in the BMP, he read racist and anti-Semitic literature from extreme right-wing Christian groups in America. He moved back to Hampshire at the end of 1998 and joined a small Nazi organisation, the National Socialist Movement, where he became leader of the region just a few weeks before his bombing campaign in 1999. At his trial, Copeland was tried for murder after the prosecution refused to accept his plea of guilty to manslaughter on the grounds that he was suffering a mental illness, paranoid schizophrenia, which diminished his responsibility at the time. The judge, Mr Justice Burton, said, A defence was put forward by the defendant of diminished responsibility, which the jury rejected. But it was in any event clear that the defendant suffered from a serious mental condition. The judge said that there was only one mitigating factor, and that was the age of the defendant, who was 22 at the time. Copeland was sentenced to six life sentences. Sentencing him, the judge said, Anyone who has heard the facts of this case will be appalled and horrified at the atrocity of your crimes. The evidence shows that you were motivated to do as you did by virulent hatred and pitiless contempt for other people. You set out to kill, to maim and to cause terror in the community and that's just what you did. Nothing can excuse or justify the evil you have done and certainly not the abhorrent views which you've embraced. The public must be protected from you and assured that if you are ever released, it would not be for a very long time. So what do you make of what you've heard today? Once more, there is nothing that stands out to us in Copeland's upbringing to suggest he would become so utterly filled with hate for whole sections of our community and able to turn that hate into such murderous mayhem. And his actions had consequences for many people, far beyond those hurt or killed in the bombings, as we will discover when we resume David Morley's story next week. But of course, as always, it's the friends and families of those seriously injured or killed where our sympathies lie. Julian Dykes, who lost his wife and unborn child at the Admiral Duncan pub and was in hospital for three weeks before he learned of his wife's death, remains so traumatised that if the conversation turns to the Soho blast, even among friends, he will still walk out of the room. One of his few public hints of the pain he's in came at his wife's funeral, at the church in Withenhoe, Essex, where they married. A note from Julian attached to the flowers read, To my son Jordan, you'll never know how much I could have loved you. Even the nail bomber admitted to police he felt sick about the death of Andrea Dykes. Perhaps Copeland, surprised as he was by the presence of so many white people in Brixton, thought it inconceivable 
for a straight couple to have been drinking at the Admiral Duncan. It just shows again how much of this hate is built on pure ignorance. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the story so far and will join me next week for part two. To discuss what you've heard today with others who share your interest in UK true crime, please head to our Facebook group. You'll be very, very welcome. And if you'd like to support the show and access the nine bonus episodes for just £3 a month, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. That is all for me for now. I'm off to watch my best of Dennis Norden DVD. Until we speak again next week, cheerio and stay classy. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.